Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. In this episode, we hear about a hijacking, how aviation made this couple meet, and this first story about learning how to fly in skydiving in the 1950s. I actually started taking flight training in 1956, I guess it was. And uh, I was in college at the time. It was something I wanted to do, was to, was to learn to fly. And uh, at the end of my freshman year in college, I, was, I had a, a summer job. It was making extra money and so forth. And I decided to go out and take flying lessons. Of course, when I talked it over with my father, he says, well, you're, you're nuts. You don't want to get involved in, in this and so forth. Of course, being who I was, that only made me more interested in what I was doing. Anyway, uh, I uh, went out to local airport, had this uh, flight instructor that uh, actually he went back to World War One. the flight instructor. He had uh, learned to fly in World War One, and he'd stayed around and, and uh, afterwards. He'd had an incident. He actually got drummed out of the military because they didn't have a uniform for people in aviation back in World War One, and and they came out. And they they actually wore cavalry, like they looked like horse people. They 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 wore uh, uh, spurs on their boots and all this kind of stuff in their dress uniform. They were having a parade or something, as the story goes, and uh, they said, "Well, what do you do with the?" With us, he says, you kick the the airplane to make it fly. You know, he he took this as an insult and promptly decked the guy that that made the comment about the uniforms that they wore back in that time. And so he got drummed at, uh, drummed out of the service. Anyway, he was a old friend of my father's, and uh, he operated a small airport in southern New Jersey. And my dad. If, if you're going to learn to fly, you ought to learn with this guy because he, you know, he'd been around for a long time, been through a whole lot of things. A lot of people respected his aeronautical ability. But anyway, at the end of the summer, when it came time to come back to school, I was about ready to solo, and they had extremely wet weather up there, and the runway was very, very soggy. And he wouldn't let me solo because uh, the ground was just too wet and they were afraid that the airplane might get damaged in the uh, soft ground. So I was very discouraged. I went back to school. And where do I go from here? Well, I went out to the local airport uh, near near the college. And I ran into this guy who was a uh, state policeman who was also a, uh, had a J3 Cub, and they didn't have any instructors on the on the field, but there were quite a few people who were willing to take me for rides and so on and so forth. So one thing led to another. I got some more flight training, and uh, they said, well, let's go down to this other airport. We have a flight ins- uh, certified flight instructor down there. I went down there and flew with this guy for about 20 minutes. I think we did three takeoff and landings. 
Next thing you know, he's getting out of the airplane, giving me instructions to bring the airplane back in one piece and so on and so forth, which I did. And I soloed. And that was in South Boston, Virginia in 1956. I'd have to look at my my logbook in there. Although he didn't get his pilot's license at this time, our storyteller so far did get other opportunities to fly, one of which was with Walter Penn, a classmate from college. Walt got involved in this uh, skydiving, but of course, to, in order to skydive, you got to get somebody to get you up into the air so that you can jump out of it and all that kind of business. And uh, anyway, uh, I had a, I did not have a private license at the time. He did have a private license, so... He was pilot in command when we took off, and when he jumped out, I was now solo, and I was pilot in command of the airplane. Needless to say, we we had permission to to uh, jump into this farmer's field up north of uh, uh, of town, and it was a cow pasture, big cow pasture, and he he would jump out of the airplane, and I would spiral down around him when he landed and I would land in the field and pick him up and we'd go back to the airport. Well, some guy was driving down the road and it was a really clear day and he sees this parachute coming down and this airplane in a spiral. So he pulls off the road and into this little gas station and he thinks it's a plane that's about to crash and the pilot had jumped out of this airplane. And uh, so he calls the, the state police. So we're out there. I guess it was the second time we did this. And we're all standing around talking to the farmer. And Walt's got the parachute all up in his arms and so forth. And here comes the state police. And they didn't know what to do about this whole thing. I mean, it was something they had not heard of the sport or of uh, any of this activity. And... Uh, Somehow, the event got hold of uh, somebody from the Wall Street Journal about what was going on, and they had a little paragraph about this uh, college kids uh, jumping out of airplanes and so on and so forth. It was a, it was kind of a kind of a big deal at the time. But uh, and the FAA found out they wanted to know who the pilots were because they got involved. And they found out, well, how could you do this? You know, you've got a, only got a student license. And I said, well, I said, well, he was pilot in command. But if they had really checked into it, they would have realized Walt was a pretty big guy. And the chute with, with the, well, he had a regular chute and a spare parachute. And uh, when he got in the airplane, his feet were hanging out the door. I mean, he, he could not fit. In there, so really, I was doing all the flying. They, they, they never really looked into that, but that was just one of them, an interesting thing that happened. But anyway, that was that was my start in aviation, and I went on to get my private license. It took me about a year and a half, mainly because I was doing it out of out of my own pocket, and even though it was a lot lot cheaper, you know, the dollar went a lot further back then than it than it does today.
After getting his pilot's license, our storyteller so far started working for Eastern Airlines back in the late 1960s. In the flight he's going to tell us about, he was the flight engineer for the Boeing 727 that didn't end up at its intended destination. I was up in uh, Newark, uh, first leg on a three-day trip. We're sitting there at the gate, and the people are getting on the, the airplane. And this was before they had jetways. They they had stairs that came up. And when you came up the stairs, you could look over and look inside the cockpit. And, of course, people like to stop and look inside the cockpit. And uh, these two people were staring into the cockpit. They were looking at everything, very, really looking at things. And... I was flying flight engineer at the time. The co-pilot says to me, you know, those guys look like the kind of people that would hijack you to Cuba. And we kind of joked about that. Well, lo and behold, we did get hijacked to Cuba. And it was those two people that were staring in the window. So, so much for profiling. Anyway, we take off and we're going down over... uh, Carolina Beach, where we have a, a flight route that goes direct from Carolina Beach to Miami over the water. And the flight attendant calls and says, hey, you guys want to have some breakfast? I said, yeah, we'd like to have some breakfast. So anyway, a few minutes later, I get this knock on the door. You know, usually it's a signal from the flight attendant that she's carried a couple trays of uh, a couple of meals and so forth. So I reach around and open up the cockpit door. And there she is standing there with a guy behind her with her knife up against her throat. So it it took me about five seconds to realize what was going on. And uh, sure enough, it was one of the two people that that was staring in in the window. The interesting part about it was this flight attendant, it was her first trip after going through school and going through training and getting checked out on the line as a flight attendant. And she she handled things very, very well. Anyway, they came in, and then a few minutes later, this other guy comes in, and he's got a uh, like a shopping bag with a fuse sticking out of it and a cigarette lighter in his hand. He was uh, uh, saying that, uh, you know, I've got this uh, bomb that, in there. You do anything wrong, I'm going to blow everything up. Anyway, we get to Cuba and we land at uh, Jose Marti Airport there outside of Havana, which is a beautiful runway built by the Russians. The terminal building was about the size of a double wide mobile home because the Cubans couldn't afford a terminal building. But otherwise, the facility was certainly plenty big enough for the airplane. And uh, this uh, Cuban officer comes up to me and he says, uh, I've got these uh, ticket stubs. And we'd like to get their bags off the airplane. They had brought some bags with them and so forth. And I said, Captain, I'm going to take care of that. So I go out there on the ramp and roll up my sleeves. I crank open the baggage door on the airplane. And I go to climb in. All of a sudden, I hear this commotion behind me. Senor, senor, look look inside there. I look in there and uh, there was a sign painted on the wall, which gave instructions what Fidel could do with himself. 
I guess that's about the cleanest thing I could say. Well, needless to say, that was that was kind of a crowning uh, thing in there. And the, the irony of the whole thing was when he saw my reaction after seeing that sign, the guy with the gun started to laugh out loud. He thought he thought it was really funny, that my reaction to it. Of course, I didn't think it was very funny at all. But anyway, uh, the, the other thing about this uh, thing was we had Alan Fun on the airplane, a guy from Candid Camera, a TV show. Uh, he was on the airplane with his uh, wife, his kids, his governess, his, his camera crew. They were all going down to Miami for a, uh, uh, a shoot for their, for their uh, TV show. And he was a bit of a problem. I don't want to get into too much detail about that, but uh, every time he was interviewed on TV, he he would talk about this time that he got hijacked to uh, to Cuba. We had a full airplane, and they would not allow us to carry the passengers out of the airport because the airport had not been uh, certified yet by the governing body. Uh, the Cubans would not allow us to use that airport to fly the people out. So they had to, they had to bus them over to another airport and get to us, smaller runways. And they, they chartered uh, two Lockheed Electors to carry the people back to Miami to their destination. After he finished telling us this, our storyteller so far brought out his logbook from that day, and over in the notes section, it simply says, Hijacked, Wilmington, North Carolina, two Cubans. You can see pictures of this on our website. We're going to switch gears now and listen to a story from the wife of the speaker we've been listening to so far, and hear how they met through aviation and aerobatic judging. I started flying in 1970-something, I'm not sure when. So it started that um, I was in a boarding school in Potchefstroom, South Africa, and uh, one holiday I went to spend at my friend's farm, and her father was a pilot. And he flew us from Ottersdal to Lichtenberg. And I was remember being in the back seat and saying, one day I'm going to fly one of these things. And it took me until the 70s till I got established enough to have enough money to spend um, $15 an hour to learn to fly at a, at a little airport called Virginia Airport in Durban. And I got my license, and um, I guess that's how I finally landed up meeting Fred. I um, was working at the time in an um, animal facility, and I worked on, on weekends, and I, my car was visible from the highway, and some friends of mine were driving by on the highway, saw my car there, and said, okay, let's go visit Liz. I was Liz back then. And um, so they did, and they stopped in, and on the wall was my calendar, and it was an EAA calendar, and it had a photograph of Oshkosh, an aerial photograph of Oshkosh, because I was a, a member of EAA then. And I had just finished my master's thesis, had handed that in and stuff, and this guy happened to be a travel agent. 
And I said to him, well, that's Oshkosh. I want to go there in August. Can you organize that? And he said, sure, I'll organize that. So we planned Oshkosh plus um, um, visiting some scientific institutions around the States as, as well. But it also happened to be the year that there was the um, World Aerobatic Contest in Oshkosh. It was 1980. And um, I knew all the guys on the, the aerobatic team. And um, so I, I met up with them when I got to Oshkosh and was hanging out with them. And they had borrowed or rented two pizzas to fly in the, the aerobatic contest, the World Aerobatics. And the pizzas were a piece of junk, absolute junk. They were constantly flying to Milwaukee to get uh, parts for it and pulling apart the engine and getting them back together again. And they finally heard about Fred's pits that um, Walter Extra, who is the um, designer of the Extra aerobatic aircraft, that um, he had had rented. But... Uh, finally didn't want it or whatever. So they, they used Fred's pits in the World Aerobatic Contest. And so that's how I met Fred. Um, he had, let me see, he had his pits, his car, and his motorhome to get back to New Jersey from Oshkosh. So I don't know who flew his pits, but some of the guys took his motorhome and another guy and I drove his Honda back to New Jersey. So I had a second time of seeing Fred. And he, I said that I was going to go up to Old Rhinebeck because that had been one of my dreams was to go to Old Rhinebeck and see all that old stuff. And I'd spent a whole day in New York trying to get there with public transport because I didn't want to rent a vehicle and, you know, drive on the wrong side of the road all on my own to, to <laughs> Rhinebeck. And Fred had mentioned that he wanted to go up there too. So I called him and I said, are you still interested in going to Rhinebeck? And he said, yes, I'll pick you up at Newark Airport. So he picked me up at Newark Airport and we went to Rhinebeck together and I was so excited about all these airplanes. And on the way back, we stopped at an airport that he, he had some friends at and there was a guy that had a steerman. And, of course, I had never, ever thought that I could ever get my butt into a steerman and fly. And Fred asked old Harry Askey to give me a ride in the steerman. So I was beaming from ear to ear, and off we went into the sky. And um, I said to him, Harry, can you do a snap roll in a steerman? And he said, yeah. So I said, okay, do one, please. I've never done a snap roll before. I'd done a little bit of aerobatics, but not much. So he put the steerman into a snap and it went around a vroom, vroom. And I said, Yoo, that's wonderful. Do it again. And so off he did it again. And I came back beaming from ear to ear to ear. And Fred was beginning to think about this woman that had come all this way from South Africa to, to look at airplanes. Because all the other women he'd met had looked at airplanes and saw a fur coat or a diamond ring or a something else. But here was a woman who was looking at his airplane like a, wow, that's an airplane. What a wonderful one it was. And so anyway, I got out and was not paying too much attention. And old Harry got hold of Fred and he said, 
Fred, she likes snap rolls. Marry her. And that's that's how we landed up getting getting together and we um only knew each knew each other for nine days when we decided to get married. And um, the, the deal was that he would ship me. We tried for a year, and if it didn't work, he'd ship me and my goods and chattels back to South Africa. And um, at our first anniversary, we looked at each other and said, well, shall we continue doing it? And we said, yeah, that's pretty good. And here we are 34 years later. And in the 34 years that we've had together, we've done a lot specifically with the Aerobatic Club. Fred used to fly his pits in competition. Uh, he got as far as intermediate, he used to fly that. Um, and then I started judging, got Fred into the judging as well. He'd been a, a judge before they'd gotten uh, technical about how to do it. And I became a judge's instructor and I still do that and um, you know very very active in contests we go all over the place to contests and enjoy our, our life and enjoy the 182 that Fred has uh, because that takes us all over the place and I get to get my butt in the air and I'm a pretty good good co-pilot having had a pilot's license at one time. Fred and Lisa Weaver live at Leeward Air Ranch, where they enjoy their Cessna 182 that Lisa had just mentioned. Actually, Fred gave me my Young Eagles flight in his Cessna a few years ago. They both volunteer at their local soup kitchen every week, and still are very active in the aerobatic judging community. More information and pictures related to these stories can be found in the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Special thanks goes out to Megan Brock, our recording and interviewing assistant. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook.